tonight I'd like to talk to you about compassion. And partly what inspired this talk this evening was, um, I, I think I had mentioned to you that I, have, I had just finished a, a three-month retreat in Barrie, Massachusetts. And as you know, when you're doing intensive retreats, memories arise. And one memory that I had, funnily enough, was when I first came to Bodh Gaya in 1987 through the invitation of Christopher. I, I had been teaching for about three years at that time. And when I came, he asked me to do a question and answer period where people would write down questions and I would sit up here and answer the questions spontaneously, which was rather a bit of a challenge at that stage of my teaching career. <laughs> and so one of the questions that I was asked was, how do I deal with the suffering that I see around me in India? And this had been my first visit to India. I had been in India for maybe five days or, or a week at that point. <laughs> And needless to say, I don't think I, well, I didn't answer the question very well. <laughs> and Christopher came up to me afterwards and said, you very good, you did very well, but the question about the suffering in India, you need more time in India. <laughs> and that, has, that memory came back because this is my tenth winter in India. And I'm... It's hard to believe that the time has gone by so fast. And so this talk is partly inspired by some of my own reflections on working with the suffering, not only the suffering and the dissatisfaction that I see in myself, but that I see all around myself and in the world. Before I came to India in 1987, I'd... I had seen very little of the world, and I had been brought up in a fairly well-to-do family, quite isolated. And my upbringing, as probably many of yours was as well, is quite an isolation or fragmentation from the real pain of life, birth, disease, old age, and death. In the West, there's a way that all that gets, well, it has, it had in the past, it's starting to break down a bit, but it gets pushed away, pushed out of sight. The, the racial problems are pushed into ghettos in America, and sick people are closed up in hospitals. I remember as a child when I had a very close aunt that was dying, I remember I wasn't allowed to go and see her in the hospital. It was a, another strong memory of just that being isolated from what might be painful. There are mental institutions, old age homes, and funeral parlors. Everything's tucked away nice and neat. And this is the world that I grew up in. 
Even the emotional life in my family, there wasn't any room for expression of the negative emotions, of the pain that I was feeling in myself growing up. Probably the same for many of you. So even back it's isolated and fragmented, pushed back. No room for expression. No room to to learn how to work with it and deal with it. So coming to India, as many of you know, the initial entry and the initial perceptions were a huge shock. Everything's out in the open. It's as if there's no walls. Everything happens right in front of us. Birth, disease, old age, and death. And for those of us who didn't have any strategies or any way to deal with it, it can be quite a, an imp- make quite an impact on us. Mm-hmm. And we come face to face with these unsatisfactory aspects of life. It seems totally out of control. And it's all here. All here for us to, to see and to be with. You see it everywhere in the I don't have to give you many examples you already know for yourselves, you know, when waiting for trains, even though they have a very efficient computerized system, <laughs> waiting and waiting and waiting for the train. The banks, how long it takes to have to cash some money. They don't have the uh, hole in the walls here where you just take your card and put it in and instantaneously you get your cash. You know, you have to plan on maybe a whole morning, if you're lucky, if there isn't some holiday that you weren't aware of that was going to be happening that day. Um, The conditions, the conditions of the people that we see, the poverty, the pollution, the lack of sanitary facilities, and all this we have to deal with. It seems completely out of our control. So being here forces us to come close to the pain of life. We can't avoid it. We're right up front. It's right up front. And many of us are not prepared for this. We're not prepared. I was not prepared for this. And coming close to this pain, this unsatisfactoriness, We can feel these feelings of helplessness, reactivity, and anger, and despair. Or we might just stay closed off. We might just get our grip and just keep our eyes removed as much as we can, even though none of that works. The feelings aren't bad. They're not wrong. They just are what is. It's just how we find ourselves. And if we can allow ourselves to come close to the suffering with an open heart, this is the cause for compassion to arise. If we stay closed off, then we stay closed off, closed off to our wellspring of compassion. Compassion in... Sanskrit and Pali is called karuna. It's a beautiful word, karuna. 
karuna or compassion is the trembling of the heart in the face of pain. The Buddha said it's a quivering or a tenderness in the heart in the face of pain. And just as metta, or loving kindness, sees the good in others and wishes for their happiness, karuna is the kind of love or metta that sees the suffering of beings and wishes for the release from it. So it's the kind of love that when it sees it, it wants the release from that suffering. It trembles, the heart quivers. When I was on the three-month course, my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, asked an interesting question. He said, if suffering is the cause for compassion to arise, then why isn't the world more compassionate? Because there really is no escape from it. So why isn't this a more compassionate world that we live in? And the answer is because we do stay closed off. We do use our strategies to stay away, to push away the unpleasant, the painful. We can see how we do that here. We can see directly in our own experience how we become reactive, how we grasp to what we like and push away that which we don't like. We can see it in our bodies when there's unpleasant sensations or there's sounds we don't like, emotions or situations that we find ourselves in here on the retreat. The reactivity comes up and we close off. We can ask the question, what keeps us from opening? What keeps us from opening? What is the wisdom that we need to know to help us to open? to this unsatisfactory aspect of life. We hold the assumption that happiness comes from pleasant feeling. Simply this. We hold this assumption that happiness comes from pleasant feeling and so we cling to that which is going to bring pleasant sensations, pleasant feelings. And we think that by opening to the unpleasant, by going close to that which is unpleasant, that somehow it's going to take us away from our happiness. It's going to turn us away from happiness. We don't realize that all it does is it turns us away from our ideas of what happiness is. Because happiness does not simply come from pleasant feelings. And as long as we don't understand this deeply, we'll stay closed off. We'll stay pulled back. We won't want anything to shake that idea of what we think makes us happy, whether it's material, mental, emotional, or spiritual. And this There was something that happened on the three-month course. Maybe this would exemplify this in some way. 
I was doing my walking meditation in the basement. There's a very large basement about the size of this room where many of us did our walking meditation. And there are three pillars on each side of the, of the hall with three large carpets of different colors on the floor. That's all that's in this hall. I'm doing my walking meditation. No, I'm not bothering anybody. I'm just walking along. Not too many other people in the room. And the thought arises, I'd rather do my meditation on that carpet. (laughs) And there really was a sense that if I moved over there, I would be able to do my walking meditation better. And there really was the belief in that for a few seconds, that I'd really be much happier if I was doing my walking meditation over there. And then... I saw the thought, and I was able to just look at me. What makes me think that my happiness <laughs> is dependent on being on that side of the rug rather on this side of the rug, the carpet? And it was a very interesting reflection. I could just see how, in that moment, had I not caught the arising of that thought, that my happiness in that moment would have depended on the location of my body in that room. And this is the way the mind works. It's just so insidious in these little, well, they seem little, but they're rather large in their consequences, ideas of what we think is going to bring us our happiness. I thought that I would have a better feeling walking over there than walking over here. So if we don't see, if we don't notice this assumption operating, it just keeps us literally keeps us going around, moving from here to there to there to there to there. And it's very exhausting. We get very, very tired. But these thoughts are so subtle sometimes. Sometimes they're not subtle, but many times they're very, very subtle. We don't see it. And then we look for our happiness in the wrong place. But for most of us, we're just distracting ourselves. We just distract ourselves in order to remain what seems more secure or comfortable, more stable. These ideas that we have of what's going to bring this security, this stability for ourselves. And then we distract ourselves looking around for these things, these conditions that are going to bring this comfort, this stability. And then we only see what we want to see. We look at what we want to look at because we're looking for what's going to bring us the pleasure, what's going to bring us the happiness. We have many ways of distracting ourselves, as you well know by now. (laughs) Many ways of distracting ourselves. And primarily, we keep ourselves busy. Busy. In busyness. Doing 
accumulating, going after sense pleasures, that which feels good. And in this doing, in this busyness, we create this wall of distraction. And this wall of distraction just dulls the mind. It dulls the heart. So that we can't actually be in touch. We're not really awake enough to notice what we're doing. We're kind of caught in a, in a dream, in a dullness, in an unknowingness, a lack of attention. When I go back to the West, and particularly the West Coast, where I spend a lot of time around San Francisco and the Bay Area, I'm really struck by the busyness of people there. And even San Francisco is considered a kind of a new age, alternative, uh, higher consciousness area where, you know, <laughs> where, you know, it's supposed to be 10 years ahead of the rest of the world. And, and it's the busyness of people. It seems that there is this lack of taking time to look within, to reflect on what's happening. It's just going, going, going. The only way to to make an appointment to see a friend is to call their answering machine and then they call your answering machine back and then you have to call their answering machine back to confirm the date and then they call your answering machine back and then you hope that when you actually get to the place you're meeting that the person shows up. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different... <laughs> a different way of being. There's so much speed, speed. And one thing about coming to India is that things do slow down (laughs) quite a bit. (laughs) The pace slows down maybe more than we like sometimes. (laughs) It starts to grind a lot slower. And we can take time to reflect. We can take time to see, even though we may still be caught in many ways of distracting ourselves. So it's obviously not just time that helps us get more in touch with ourselves, because if it was just time, there'd be many more realized beings than there are. But it also requires the willingness, the interest to want to look the interest to want to find out the truth of this existence. We need to have that interest alive. So we come on retreat. This is a really valuable, valuable, and precious opportunity to stop and take a look at some of these questions, some of these issues we're discussing. And we find that by coming on retreat, right here we're face to face with the unsatisfactory nature of things. We're face to face with a wide range of feelings and emotions and situations, unsatisfactory as well as satisfactory, but we can't really get away from it. The silence, the silence that holds this together helps with this non-distraction. And the silence itself starts to be more permeable. We can feel the silence. 
and it helps us get more quiet in our mind, in our body. And then we can start to look. There's a, um, a passage that was read at the United Nations Environmental Sabbath Program about the silence, about taking time for reflection. And I think this is a really very beautiful statement. We who have lost our sense and our senses, our touch, our smell, our vision of who we are, we who frantically force and press all things without rest for body or spirit, hurting our earth and injuring ourselves, we call a halt to stop. We want to rest. We need to rest and allow the earth to rest. We need to reflect and to rediscover the mystery that lives in us, that is the ground of every unique expression of life, the source of the fascination that calls all things into communion. We declare a Sabbath, a space of quiet for simply being and letting be, for recovering the great forgotten truths, for learning to live again. We call a halt (laughs) so we can reconnect with this living truth and feel the communion which we share. So we come here and we feel the dissatisfaction that is there in ourselves and around us. And many times, for many of us, we just want to push it out there and say, why can't this change? Why can't that change? If only that would stop. If only this would stop. Then I'd be happy. Then I could get some peace. Then I could get some rest in myself. But as you see, the three of us just keep putting it back to you. (laughs) You know, look and see what's going on with you. The retreat and what happens here on the retreat helps us to begin to learn how to work with these difficulties, with the difficulties we feel in ourselves, with the unsatisfactoriness, with the pain. Because when we're here, when we're aware of the mind and the body, we can see the whole world in ourselves. We can see all the qualities that make for war and conflict, and we can see all the qualities that make for happiness and joy. The whole world is right here in this mind. We don't have to go very far. To take an example, if something happens that's unpleasant, sometimes we can see that there's the willingness to explore and the willingness to be with that and to look into it and to try to understand. But sometimes we can see that we just tighten and we move away. We don't want to be close to it. We don't want to feel it. But yet again and again, it comes back. Something irritates us. Something agitates us. And we can see that we don't like it. 
We want it to go away. And sometimes we even want to destroy it. We can feel that rise in ourselves. We don't like it. We want it to go away. And then sometimes the aversion, the anger comes so strong, the reactivity comes so strong, we may even feel we want to destroy that thing. Hmm? I mean, take a simple example. We can... We have the situation here with mosquitoes. This is always a very good example. What happens when that mosquito starts to buzz around your ear? What is the feeling that arises in the body and the mind? And sometimes does that feeling get to be so strong that it moves the body into action and we just want to... And oftentimes if there's not the the consciousness, if there's not the awareness, of course we just go. Hmm? (coughs) Where is the compassion? Where is the compassion for the mosquito? (laughs) (laughs) No, but we sometimes don't think it's important enough. Hmm? The life of that living being. We had the bus out here the last couple of days. Vroom, vroom, vroom. <laughs> During the meditation. You know. What was the feeling that arose inside? What did we want to do with that? You know, was there the sense of just seeing the aversion in the body? Or we really thought that if only that bus would go away, then I'd be able to meditate. Then I'd be able to start to look at myself. Hmm? (laughs) You know, this this looking at ourselves is dependent on certain conditions being the way we want them to be. I mean, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? (laughs) So how can we work with this reactivity? Really just coming down to it in a very practical and real way. Because we see that this opportunity is available to us in so many moments in the day when that reactivity arises in the mind and body. In the moment of feeling the unpleasant sensation, or just even the mind moving into self-judgment, notice in that moment what the mind is making contact with when it tightens, when it recoils when it pulls back. What is it? Is it a sense contact, a sight, a sound, taste, smell, touch? Or is it a thought or an image? You can see this. It can be very clear in consciousness. What is it that the mind is making contact with that it's pulling back, pulling away? And then to acknowledge that tightening in the body, feeling that tightening in the body, noticing the mind contracting, and then to acknowledge that it's happening here, (coughs) to bring it back to oneself. Because the tendency can be to think it's out there, and that condition has to change. But we turn it here, we see where it's actually happening. It's happening here, the tightening, the contraction, the pain. So we turn the attention back here and then see if we can soften, relax, soften that 
that tension, the tightening in the body. And then notice how the mind and the body feels when we do that, when we soften, when we relax. And a good example that has been arising quite a lot is the person coughing. We had lots of comments about coughing. You know, if only people would stop coughing, you know, then we could, I could do my meditation. But, I mean, are you really seeing this? <laughs> the person doesn't need to stop coughing for us to do our meditation. <laughs> I mean, it's happening. This is our opportunity. We're being handed an opportunity on a silver platter to look at how the heart closes off, how we stay caught in separation. Me here, it out there, that has to change so I can come to peace. So the person's coughing. We project that the problem's out there. We notice that blame, that not wanting, the not liking, if only the condition, if only that would go away. Turn it back to ourselves. Feel where the tightening, where the aversion is happening, and soften, relax. This is the act of compassion towards ourselves. Turning the love towards the pain in ourselves. Softening around it. Dissolving that feeling of separation, that I'm separate from that. Bringing it in. Softening, dissolving. And we notice how the heart feels when we dissolve that separation. And we can see that even in the face of pain, even in the face of dissatisfaction, a kind of contentment can come. A kind of ease can come right in the face of something we don't like. Sometimes it's really very strong. The tightness is very strong. We feel that that inability to soften, to open. So we can ask ourselves the question, what is so painful about the situation that I'll do anything not to feel it? What is so painful about this situation that I'll do anything in the world not to feel it? And sometimes we'll go to great extent not to feel it. What is it? And asking the question itself can redirect the attention to the place, to the location of the pain. And that in itself is the act of compassion. Because the interest is there, the willingness is there to explore, to know, to want to understand. So in that, we can reconnect. We can reconnect with ourselves. We're not going out there wanting the conditions to change. We're reconnecting with ourselves. We're moving forward. We're moving into the unsatisfactory nature. We're not pulling away, closing off. But we can see how easy it is to drop into self-pity and sorrow and grief. But this isn't (coughs) compassion. And this is what the Buddha said we can bring an end to. 
in the Satipatthana Sutra, he said, there is one direct way, there is one straight way to overcome, to end grief, sorrow, lamentation, and despair. Lamentation is an intense form of unhappiness. What is that way? The way of awareness. The way of awareness. So we can bring an end to the grief, to the sorrow, to the despair. And we can see that it is not the unpleasant sense contact that is causing the dissatisfaction, but rather it's our relationship to it. It's what we're adding on top of the situation. I am in conflict with that. And we feel the, the self-pity sometimes. and We feel sorry for ourselves and the grief and the sorrow. But this can get disguised as compassion. In the teachings of working with compassion, this is called the near enemy. The near enemy means that these feelings that come and disguise themselves as compassion. But the sorrow and the grief, even though it may feel that we're coming close to to the suffering, it's not compassion. Because there's still aversion in it. There's still the wish for the situation to end, to change. We still have a tinge of aversion. But compassion, karuna, has no aversion in it. It is the heartfelt wish to alleviate the pain. Compassion has the energy of giving, of generosity, not holding on, not wanting things to change. And we're not, when we're not bound up with this holding, when we're not bound up with our ideas of what we want to have happen, what we want to be happening, when we're not bound up in attachment and aversion and protecting the sense of I and what I want, this frees up the energy. It frees up the spirit so then that the compassion can start to flow, the true compassion. There's one quality of mind which empowers us to face this unsatisfactory an unsatisfactory aspect of life again and again. Because this can be very demanding. Life is very demanding to have to keep facing it, facing the pain again and again and again without drowning in the aversion and the sorrow. And that one quality of mind is called equanimity. And it's the equanimity which gives us the courage to look at pain again and again. Equanimity is the unconditional acceptance. It is a spacious stillness of the mind. It is a radiant calm of the mind. And it's equanimity which allows us to feel at home in ourselves and in the world rather than the way we often feel of alienation and fragmentation and separation, feeling cut off. 
It's equanimity which allows us to understand truly what we cannot control and to be at peace in ourselves. All the situations arise out of causes. Everything has a cause. Everything that manifests, everything that arises, arises lawfully. And why things happen, to try to understand those causes, it's much, much bigger than we can see. It's much vaster than the mind can comprehend. And we really do need to keep a very big perspective about things, a very vast perspective. And it is truly maybe more than we can do at times. We accept things because they're happening, not necessarily because they're right. And I think this is an important point because sometimes we can feel that if we're accepting it, we're also saying it's okay that it's happening, making it right in some way. But we don't accept things because they're right. We accept it because it's happening. It's what is. It's the truth of that moment. And acceptance demands us to face the truth, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whether we like it or whether we don't like it. When we accept, it gives us a more balanced perspective of what's happening. Otherwise, we just keep adding more suffering, doing things that add more pain. No matter how much we may wish, things are as they are. Things are as they are. In this life, there is joy and there is sorrow. Can we accept that with an open heart? We've been doing the metta practice here on the retreat And to do the equanimity practice, to take equanimity as a practice, we can use this phrase for ourselves in the face of that which seems out of our control and out of our understanding. We can just say, things are as they are. Things are as they are. And you can try this next time you want things to be other than the way they are. Just drop back and see if you can contact, connect with that place of equanimity and just say, things are as they are. Things are as they are. In the same way that compassion has its near enemy, equanimity has its near enemy. That which disguises itself as equanimity. And that which disguises itself is indifference. It can can feel like there's equanimity, but we're actually disconnected and cut off. We're not actually close to staying with what's happening at all. We've just removed ourselves, we feel calm, we feel at ease, and we say, this is equanimity. But we have to be very careful, 
because it may just be indifference, not caring. And this leads to passivity, denial, and reactivity because the heart is not open at all. And it's only when the heart is open we can be caring and feel the kind of compassion that will lead us to take action, that will lead us to compassionate acts in our lives. If we can not fall into that place of indifference and disconnection and non-caring, people often fear that the meditation practice will cut them off and they'll feel more indifferent and they'll feel disconnected from the world. I hear this many times that people feel concerned that the meditation is going to bring them more into themselves and they won't feel like they want to be helpful or know what's going on in the world. But this again is, is not equanimity. This is disconnection. Equanimity is connection. And equanimity is what empowers love. It empowers compassion. It empowers joy so that we can stay present in the face of the difficulties of life. Just to end, I thought I would introduce to you the compassion meditation. If you want to take compassion as a practice as we have with metta, and as I mentioned with equanimity, the compassion practice also has a phrase. And we work with the easiest person. Because again, it's, if we're coming close to pain, it can, we, want, we may want to repel, we may want to back off, we may, may want to pull back. So we work with somebody who is easy, somebody who is in pain, somebody who is having a difficult time, but somebody who you can move close to in your mind and your heart so you don't get pulled back. And as you hold this being, this person in your heart, in your mind, you gently say the phrase, may you be free of suffering. May you be, may you be free of suffering. And you repeat that phrase until the compassion flowers in the heart, till you can feel that connection and the dissolving of that separation between you and that being. May you be free of your suffering. And then you can extend this to to groups of beings, or you can extend it to all beings everywhere. May all beings everywhere be free of suffering. And it's important to remember that these practices do not remove the suffering. No. It's not that we will be able to empower 
our minds to such an extent that we become so powerful that it can really eradicate the suffering. But rather what it does is it strengthens our connection to the pain so that then we are able to take action. We are able to do the things that will alleviate the pain in this world. So we're given many practices, many tools, many skills to work with over these days. The tool of awareness, paying attention, metta, compassion, equanimity, generosity, service or compassionate action. All tools, all ways to work with opening the heart, with connecting to our world, to our life. And it's through paying attention and with the interest and the willingness we can transform our negativity and our greed. We can bring an end to grief and sorrow and despair. And in the words of the UN Environmental Sabbath Program, through paying attention, through stopping and taking time, we can rediscover the mystery that lives in us, that is the ground of every unique expression of life, the source of the fascination that calls all things into communion. Let's sit for a few minutes together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.